All right, we have a couple of announcements just to remind you that registration, I'm getting an echo. Registration, still getting an echo. Registration for the uh, Chafer Seminary spring semester is going on until, I believe, the 21st. Is that right, Barb? 21st? Yeah, through January 21st. And those who are members of West Houston Bible Church can uh, take up to two courses tuition-free, but there's still a registration uh, cost. Then uh, this Saturday morning, the uh, men's prayer breakfast is at 7.30, and so looking forward to seeing a lot of you men there. We have a tremendous opportunity to discuss, watch films, and discuss these uh, things related to uh, Francis Schaeffer's book and film series on how should we then live, which is as relevant for today as it was when uh, he produced that. And then also our annual congregational meeting is February 6th, immediately following the morning worship service. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, furnished for every good work. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord and that our study time this evening will be profitable. Uh, We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're so thankful that we can come together again this evening to study your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in the light of your truth that we see light. And as we study your word, it helps us to understand reality as it is and not as we would like it to be. And we're so thankful that we have God the Holy Spirit, who is the one who uh, inspired and worked through the writers of Scripture to write exactly what you desire to be written, who indwells us and enables us to understand your word. It is not always easy. It takes time. It takes thought. It takes study. But through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we can understand what he has written. So, Father, we pray that as we study tonight and reflect upon how we can know that your word has been preserved and transmitted and is reliable, that um, God the Holy Spirit would convince us of the truth of this material. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're looking at the topic this evening in terms of trusting the Hebrew text. Now, the reason we're focusing so much on the Old Testament is the Old Testament really comes under much more attack for its veracity than the New Testament. And one of the reasons for that is because it it took so many years for the uh, revelation of the Old Testament. It goes from the time of Moses, maybe earlier with Job, goes from the time of, of Moses or Job, roughly 1500 B.C., all the way up until... Uh, the last of the Old Testament was written somewhere around 400 B.C. That's a period of over a 1,000 years, and that's a long period of time, and the original documents uh, certainly don't exist, and except for the last few books, some of the post-exilic writings, uh, they're uh, pretty far removed from any extant copies that we have. And so we have to look at how was the Bible transmitted, how was it copied, 
uh, how do we put together the text? And one of the things that's important to remember is that God oversees the process from the very beginning. If he is going to take the time, the energy, the effort to speak anthropomorphically, uh, to reveal his word to us, and for it to be inscripturated, then don't you think that it would be reasonable that an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God can oversee the process of the preservation and the transmission of the text? And so when we start with God as our presupposition and the kind of God that is revealed in Scripture, which is what we've taken time to do, then it is clear that we can trust the text because God is behind it. We've looked at this basic question, has God spoken, which is the question that the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? And this is the question and the doubt for so many people especially today, because unlike previous generations, and by that I mean those that go back before most of us, there were in our generation and those following us uh, more doubts, more attacks, more critiques of the Bible than any generation before. It didn't start with the post-World War II generation. It actually started in the middle of the 19th century with, with all seriousness. But it has continued, and for many people, it raises enough doubt to where they really don't think that you can trust uh, the Bible. So we looked at the real issue, which is who is this God? We talked about the essence of God in terms of his omniscience and omnipotence. We looked at the claims the Bible makes for itself, and the bottom line on that is either the Bible's telling the truth or it's not. If it's not telling the truth, then none of it matters. If it is telling the truth, then it matters a great deal, and everything we do should conform to what the Scripture says. We looked at how we got the Scriptures in terms of the basic tools, uh, things of that nature, in terms of the writing of the Hebrew Scriptures, the mechanics of it, then we looked at how it got written in terms of the authors and uh, the time periods uh, that took place. And then we looked at its accuracy in one sense. We're looking at this, answering it in another sense tonight. We looked at the issue of mosaic authorship and how can we be sure we have the Old Testament no more and no less. And this will get into our last topic, which overlaps with some of this that um, has to do with the transmission of the text, which we'll focus on tonight. And ans- answering this last question, can we really trust the Old Testament? So last time we began to look at this whole issue of how we got the Hebrew Bible that we have before us. And so I took this chart out of Randy Price's book, um, Searching for the Original Bible, where he divides this into primary sources and secondary sources. We covered a little bit of this last time looking at the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, but we'll cover some more. So in terms of primary sources, there's a silver amulet that was discovered that has the Shema, some other passages on it. And that gives us evidence that it's uh, in terms of the antiquity of the text. The Nash papyrus, which I'll talk about tonight, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, the uh, commentary on Habakkuk, various Tephilim and uh, Mezuzot. I defined those last time. The Tephilim are the boxes that are strapped onto the back of the hands and the forehead. Uh, you'll see uh, Orthodox Jews wearing that. Uh, talking about, uh, as they applied Deuteronomy, that um, they are to think about the Word of God and have it on their mind and on their hands. And and all of these different things, the Tephilim have within them little scrolls. And uh, when you, if you've been to Israel, I know one place when we go down into the Western Wall tunnels, there's a display there, and the Tephilim that are used today are pretty small comparatively. So the ones that were worn in the first century were 
probably uh, two inches or more high and an inch or inch and a quarter wide and maybe an inch and a half long. So they were quite large, and they had a scroll of Scripture. So in archaeology, and so part of what we're doing tonight is transitioning for what I'll be covering the next couple of weeks is uh, archaeology in the Bible. But archaeology has discovered these ancient texts. So as we look at these uh, ancient documents like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the uh, various uh, manuscripts that have been uh, recovered, the Samaritan Pentateuch, ancient Greek versions, much of that has been recovered through archaeology. So we're, I'm transitioning into that topic. In fact, pro- probably the greatest archaeological discovery related to biblical studies ever is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm spending some time on that is because of the significance of that that we looked at last time. So you have your primary sources, which are the original copies of, of uh, not the original copies of Scripture, but the uh, primary source manuscripts. Then you have secondary sources, and these are translations into other languages uh, where they are not in the, let's say, the uh, straight-line development of the text, but they uh, contributed to it. You have the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritans only uh, took, accepted the, the uh, five books of Moses as authoritative because, of course, they are in uh, the northern area, north of Judea, in the area that was uh, taken out by the Assyrians in 722 uh, B.C. And so they come back and they don't accept the rest of the Old Testament because it focuses on the importance of the line of David, the importance of the tribe of Judah, the importance of Jerusalem as the only authorized place of worship, and they reject, reject all of that. And I showed you some pictures of the uh, of the critical text today as it exists, the Hebrew text, and then uh, that's the larger letters that you see here, and then the sigla that's out here on the margin, and then down below gives you information about uh, differences that show up in various different ma- manuscripts. So we see that um, in contrast to the New Testament, which is written over a period of 60 years, the Old Testament is written over a period of a 1,000 years, and so this makes the discovery of the process more difficult. We have all of these different uh, manuscripts that we have found and translations, and so it's comparing those that is the process or is the responsibility of the discipline known as textual criticism, where you have, um, you don't have the original document, but you have a lot of copies and translations, and so there are places where there's disagreement, and the process is to go through to discover what the original uh, would have said. That's not as difficult as you might think. Uh, as Dr. Ryra used to say, it's not that we have 98% of the Bible, it's that we have 102%, and we need to figure out what 2% really shouldn't be there. But none of this affects doctrine or theology or any of those things. Most of the differences are just spelling and uh, a modernization of the text, uh, just as if you were reading... Uh, Beowulf in Middle English, then if you wanted a modern reader to understand it, you would modernize the text without changing uh, the words or the language. And so there's evidence of this modernization uh, taking place over the the length of time. Of course, there's also errors, as I pointed out, because uh, in handwritten documents which characterize the oldest manuscripts before they adopted the block letters of, of Aramaic. See, this the, on the right you have the block letters of Aramaic, and on the left you have examples of a proto or early Hebrew or Aramaic script. And so there's a, a lot of difference there. And those who work in this area take the time to 
uh, learn how to do that. But it's easy to get certain words confused and misread, and so that would be one source of, of errors. So we have the various Hebrew manuscripts, uh, the primary sources, and then we have the secondary sources. Last time we looked at the Masoretic text, which is the basis for the text that we use to translate the Old Testament. And this is final, reaches a finalized form between 500 and 1,000 A.D. So just over 1,000 years ago, it reaches its final form. And up until 1948, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscript that we had was dated to around 850 or 950 A.D., which is a good 1,000 years after the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they, they hadn't been discovered yet. And so the group that was responsible for preserving the text were known as the Masoretes from the word Mazora, which refers to the transmission or tradition. It's a structure of the scribal notations, uh, which commented on everything from alternate readings to different grammatical forms. And so by the time you get into the Christian era, uh, so many uh, so many Jews were being convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that it is believed and documented that the Masoretes would, and they were inventing the vowels that would go in because, remember, the original text only had consonants. So the, the, um, the Masoretes would change the vowels in a word because that would change the word. And that would change the meaning of the text. So they were uh, manipulating the text to remove messianic implications and prophecies from the text. And I just picked up a very large two-volume work uh, that was recommended by one of the pastors in our Friday morning group. It just came out a year ago. It has a foreword by a messianic Jew whom I'm vaguely familiar with. But the point of all of this is this author has traced and tracked this and gives a lot more information about various ways in which the text was manipulated by the Masoretes. And this is something that I was never taught when I was in seminary. When I was in seminary and we studied textual criticism, the basic idea that we were told was the Masoretic text is pretty good. You can you can rely upon it, and uh, that was really the bottom line. We got into a few details, but that was that was mostly it. Since then, there of course that was in the 70s, which was only probably only about, for all practical purposes, 25 years or so after uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were really uh, being studied. And at that time, a lot of the uh, the readings and a lot of the th- things were not cataloged or made available to the public. Now it's a huge amount that's available. And so these, these large portions of the Old Testament and the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which was also discovered there at Qumran, that a lot of that material wasn't really available for a, a wide number of scholars to study uh, in the in the 70s. But it's much different scenario now, and I began to be aware of this about 20 years ago, and more and more uh, writings. For example, I've referred to this several times in passages, like when we studied Psalm 110 not too long ago on Sunday morning that verse 3 in the English just is, makes no sense, and the Hebrew makes no sense, but if you repoint it, it makes a lot of sense, which would which shows that the, uh, the Masoretes had changed the significance there. And in reading the, the works of, um, of, of uh, Michael Rydelnik, he points out in a number of places where the Masoretes made these changes. Others have done that, and in the foreword to this book, uh, this two-volume work that I picked up uh, just got within the last four or five days and haven't had time to really get into it yet. Uh, he makes these same claims. In the, in the foreword that's written for the book, the writer, set, who's a Messianic Jew and pastor, I believe, says, makes a point that nothing new in these two, two volumes 
There's nothing new there. A lot of this was has been known by Messianic Jews for centuries, going back to the first century, and even the first century leaders in the church, like Irenaeus, uh, knew these things. That the Maser- that that the scribes, the Hebrew scribes, were manipulating the text to get rid of things that pointed to Jesus as as the Messiah. Now we have all of these corollary things. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a number of different uh, recensions of the of the Septuagint, because there's different, slightly different versions and what they call families in the uh, in the Septuagint. And when you compare all of these things, you begin to realize that in some places the Septuagint is more uh, preserves a more accurate original reading than the Masoretic text. So as I pointed out a minute ago, when I was in seminary, if it was basically the Masoretic text is trustworthy. Now, on the basis of a lot of work by a textual critic named Emmanuel Tove, who's an Israeli, and a lot of the work that he has done, he's considered one of the foremost textual critics today, and his basic principle is the one I'd already picked up from listening to Rydelnik and some others, is if you have a reading in the Septuagint and it is confirmed by one or two or more ancient translations or um, manuscripts, for example, if you've got the Septuagint reading is one thing and that also fits uh, a Qumran manuscript and fits, let's say, a an Aramaic Targum, which is written in Aramaic, then that's probably the correct reading for the original than, than what was preserved in the Masoretic text. And that's why this whole process of textual criticism is so important. But the bottom line, again, which I want to... Uh, clarify is just that nothing significant really changes in the scripture. I mean, th- this doesn't affect doctrine. It doesn't affect theology. Uh, it affects a few things here and there that become uh, known uh, more and more. So we have uh, these changes that take place, and they're written in the critical text in the in what's called the apparatus at the bottom of the page. So if you have time as a scholar, you can, you know, drill down on all of these. And with the computerization, there's a whole list of of, um, different critical sources that I have in accordance. In fact, about a year ago, I sat through a couple of workshops online led by Emmanuel Tove, walking us through how to do these different processes and using all of these different tools that are available. So this is why we have to have men who go to seminary. Not all men who go to seminary are going to end up in the pulpit. Some of them don't have the personality and may not be spiritually gifted to be a pastor teacher, but they can be scholars. And there are those who invest, they're, they're very good in language and linguistics, and they are needed in this kind of, uh, of research. So it's just looking at all the little details in Scripture. And this chart I showed you last time is showing the, the various dots that are used to indicate the vowels that are in the text. So we talked about the Masoretes and some of the important um, manuscripts that survive from them. And then we looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the most important find uh, related to the Bible. 931 different documents, oldest copies of the Old Testament, uh, Jewish sectarian writings, because this was a sect, a, a, a subset of... Judaism, there were several that you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they believed this group were, were known as the Essenes, which are not mentioned in Scripture. There were other Jewish sects. We would call talk about the Samaritans as a sect. And so the Samaritan writings, you have to weigh them because they're, they're coming from their agenda. Uh, these writings at Qumran were composed in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
they were produced between 250 B.C. and 68. That's the time of the Jewish revolt and the uh, assault and uh, the assault on Jerusalem. And so these documents were hidden in Judean caves before 68 and not discovered until 19. Uh, 48 and Westenfield talks about their significance that it gives us a great deal more confidence about the ac- I'll insert this the accuracy of the text and the way it was passed along because we're able to compare what has been passed down to us with these things that are discovered that predate the the uh, earliest copies we had by a thousand years so Further evidence shows that 175 of the 500 manuscripts are biblical texts. They were very concerned with preserving the scripture at at Qumran. All of the Old Testament books are represented except Esther. Other books are represented, but they're not considered scripture. That's a very important thing that comes out of uh, this study. Uh, commentaries are, were there, and they uh, deal only with the biblical canon. There are no commentaries written on the Apocrypha. Those are the, uh, depends on what part of the world you're in, uh, anywhere from 8 to 12 or 13 books that are in Roman Catholic, Syrian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, or uh, Egyptian Coptic. Uh, canons of scripture they deal with the they go into the old testament not the new testament uh, but they are never were accepted by jews as canonical and so none of those are part of the uh, commentaries written at qumran Uh, 20 of the 39 old testament books are quoted as scripture and so there's no evidence among the essenes that they accepted any apocryphal books as Uh, as canonical. And there's clearly evidence there uh, that the canon was closed before the incarnation. Now, the point in this statement is that you had three groups of Jews. After 586, the northern uh, tribes are taken out in 722, and they're scattered in the Assyrian Empire. The Judean and southern tribes, Jews, were taken out in 586 B.C., and one group goes to Egypt. Another group went to Babylon. So now you have basically three Jewish communities. You have an Egyptian community, a community in what is referred to as Palestine at that time, and a community in Babylon. Each of those communities had certain traditions that were distinct from the others, but they recognized the same scripture. They recognized the same, depending on how you count them, 22 or 24 books. But the, the, the difference is because, for example, we call it First and Second Samuel, and they would just call it Samuel, or they, actually they call it uh, First Kingdoms, and, and that's Samuel, and then Second Kingdoms is First and Second Kings. So they... They see the same number of, of books that we do, and so there's, there's uh, no, no real challenge. It really helps define the, uh, the canon made up of the Torah, the law, the writings, the Ketuvim, and the prophets, the Nevi'im. So now we come to another source, and that is the Nash Papyrus, and this was acquired by a man named W.L. Nash, a wealthy uh, British uh, citizen who in 1902 acquired it and then donated it to the uh, Cambridge University uh, Library. It's important because it, it contains a damaged copy of the Ten Commandments and Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 17, and part of Deuteronomy 5, 6 to 21, as well as the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. So this is uh, dated then between 150 B.C. and uh, A.D. 68. So it fits within the same time period as uh, the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that that attests to the those particular scriptures. 
Then there's another group of manuscripts or fragments that's discovered uh, in an old synagogue in Cairo that had been converted to a church, St. Michael's Church, until A.D. 882. Guess what happened then? The peaceful people, the Muslims came in and destroyed everything. So in the ruins of this old synagogue, they discovered uh, it had been walled in, but they discovered this room uh, in which there were all of these manuscripts. Because remember, in the transmission of the text, the Jews treat the text because it has the name of Yahweh. They treat that with reverence, and therefore you can't destroy it, you can't burn it, you can't do any of that. So they would put it into a special place that was hidden, so nobody would go find a corrupted or used or uh, worn-out uh, manuscript. And so that was called a Geniza. And so you, they discovered this, uh, these Cairo Geniza fragments, and they were dated to the 6th and 8th century A.D. So they're 500 to 700 years after Christ, and they were hidden there. Well, this is important because it helps us to develop and track the development of the Masoretic text and, and the process there. Over 200,000 fragments were discovered, 200,000 fragments uh, discovered. And so it's, that's quite a task. If you like jigsaw puzzles and you're good at languages, this is a good job for you is to take those and try to put them all together and make some sense out of it and then to translate them. And so this is very helpful in our tracing how the Masoretic text develops. Then we come to the Septuagint, uh, abbreviated with the Latin Roman numeral for 70. It's the Latin word for 70. And this, uh, the claim is, in a letter of Aristius, uh, there is a record that at the time of Ptolemy II of Egypt, that Ptolemy wrote a letter to the high priest Eleazar for for the Jews to provide six elders from each of the 12 tribes. Now, six times 12 is usually 72, and I think I got that right, even if I am math-challenged. So it's approximately 70, and that they would make a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the first thing they did was they translated the Pentateuch into Greek, and the legend is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the uh, Pentateuch into Hebrew. The Jewish community by this time, by the mid, this would be the mid uh, fourth century BC, around 300, or third century, around 300 to 250, that they no longer spoke Hebrew or they could no longer read Hebrew and they spoke Greek. And so it was necessary for them to have a Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, so that they could understand the Word of God. We don't know exactly when it was translated or how long the whole Old Testament took to be translated, but it was done in this 3rd century B.C., and it probably took some time. And it's even though they claim it was inspired by by God, uh, it's clear that it is not anything like the Hebrew text. It's an uneven, inconsistent uh, translation. You can tell that there are different uh, that that translators had a different uh, different grasp or different level of understanding of of Hebrew and and making making the translation. But it's the most important of all of the translations because it is a witness to the proto-Masoretic text, to the early text in the process of development into the what we know now as the Masoretic, uh, Masoretic text. So it's very important for textual criticism and to understand uh, what what the text said, and is the Masoretic text conform to the uh, to the Septuagint? There's a lot of differences. There's clearly places where the the Septuagint is not 
as reliable, not as good as the Masoretic text. And there are other places where the Masoretic text is clearly a superior, reflects a clearly uh, superior uh, lineage. Many books are translated almost literally, uh, while other books like Job and Daniel are translated in a much more dynamic uh, translation. So it really depends on uh, each translation as to how, how valuable it is. It is centuries before the Masoretic text, so it's uh, the oldest uh, that we have that we can uh, compare the Scripture to. And remember, the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church. It was used extensively by the New Testament authors. You can read, if you read the text in the Greek and compare it to the Septuagint, you see that a lot of times there are differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, and it's the Septuagint that the New Testament writers are quoting. Now, that doesn't mean that the, New Te- that the Septuagint was inspired. What it means is that the verse or the portion of the verse that is used by a New Testament apostle is accurate. It may not be an accurate translation of the Hebrew, but it may read very differently from the Hebrew, but it still is now getting the stamp of approval by the Holy Spirit. So the the Holy Spirit may have said one thing, it got translated into Greek, something different, but the something different wasn't wrong. It was also accurate, and so that is then used by the Holy Spirit uh, in the uh, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's the authoritative text for the early church. Uh, they're Greek speakers. That's what they used for an Old Testament up through the second, third, fourth century in the Eastern Church. And then there were some more up-to-date Greek translations with their own strengths and weaknesses that came along in that time period. It's also quoted by uh, Jewish writers in the first century, Philo, who's very early in the first century A.D., and Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who writes a little later on in the first century. Now, in this chart, I've just organized these different Texts, And these are the sources for what we now call the critical text of the Hebrew Bible. So on the left, we have early Hebrew texts, the Silver Amulet, Nash, Papyrus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Severus Scroll. In the middle column, we have medieval manuscripts. I talked about these last time, the Codex Leningradensis, which is the basis for the current critical text in the Biblia Hebraica. You have the Aleppo Codex, which is very old and has was preserved in Syria. Uh, Codex Chirensis, which was an early uh, translation done by uh, one of the uh, Masoret families. And then another manuscript identified as the Oriental 4445, which is in the British Museum. Then in the column on the far right, there are ancient translations or recension. A recension is a copy of an earlier translation. You have the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, what's called the Old Latin uh, Manuscript, which is a Latin translation preceding the Vulgate. Okay, the Vulgate was copied by, was uh, translated by Jerome in the uh, 4th century, and he's uh, Became, he was something of a monk, and he lived and did his work at the church of the, um, not the church, not the crucifixion, the um, uh, where, the, where Christ's birth was there in Bethlehem. So that is that's where Jerome was, and it's a statue out in the courtyard of of, of Jerome and his work there. Then the Syriac Peshitta, which we'll talk about in a minute, and Aramaic Targums. So you have the Samaritan Pentateuch is a Hebrew version of the Torah uh, written in a consonantal, no vowels, a very early written form of a Paleo-Hebrew script. 
So it attests to something that's quite early, even though what we have of it is not uh, that early. There are some 6,000 differences or variants between the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Masoretic text. Remember, these, who were these Samaritans? The Samaritans were the people who were resettled, the descendants of the people who were resettled by the Assyrians in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they also were comprised of Jews who returned from captivity into uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had different views. They only thought, saw that, that only thought the Torah, the five books of Moses, was authoritative. Uh, they did not worship in Jerusalem. They said that the place for the temple was on Mount Gerizim. And to this day, there are Samaritans every year at Passover. They go up there and they slaughter the Passover lambs for the Samaritan people. And this, con- this continues. So there's, I think the number is pretty low now. I don't know the exact name, number, but it's in the low hundreds. It's four or five hundred uh, Samaritans uh, still survive today. Some 1,600 of those variants agree with the Septuagint, which is very important for understanding the accuracy of the text. And most of these differences are just spelling or smoothing over uh, the text, not changing the meaning of the text. And the actual date of the writing that we have is from the fifth and or the original is the fifth and second between the fifth and second century BC. Then we have the Aramaic Targums. Now, Aramaic was the language that everybody spoke in what is called the ancient Near East. When you're doing biblical studies, it's the ancient Near East, but if you're talking about modern times, it's the Middle East, same territory. Uh, it's just mo- modern is anything that's in the last couple of hundred years, it's called the Middle East, and before that, it's called the ancient Near East. And that was their common language, very close to Hebrew. Daniel has portions of Daniel written in in Aramaic. There's portions of Ezra that were written in Aramaic and a couple of other verses in the Bible that have uh, Aramaic in them. During the Babylonian captivity, Jews adopted Aramaic as their primary language, and so they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic, and then they wrote commentaries on it in the Old Testament, and those commentaries were were uh, described by the term Targum. Targum is a singular, so to speak of the Targum of Jonathan, which is a commentary by Rabbi Jonathan, and the Targum of Ankalos. But if you're talking about them in the plural, they're Targumim, and that basically means explanations or commentary on the text, and they included almost every book of the Bible except for Ezra and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. They were already had large portions written in Aramaic. Then you have the Syriac uh, Peshitta. Peshitta means a common version. And the Syriac, the Old Testament was translated into the Syriac around 1st to the 2nd century A.D. in either a Jewish or a Christian context. It became the official Bible of the Syriac church in the early uh, centuries of Christianity. And it's useful to compare it with the Dead Sea Scrolls in order to understand uh, the Old Testament. So that helps us understand the, the uh, these ancient manuscripts that are used and gives us an overview of that. And then when we talk about the origin of the Hebrew Bible, uh, I have this chart. Also, I took this from uh, Randy's book on searching for the original Bible. Uh, which is, it traces it out. You have the original writings called the original autographs written by Moses, written by Joshua, written by Samuel, and they are uh, copied, transmitted, preserved, and that becomes what is known as the proto-Hebrew text. Now, along the way, they are still worked on and added to uh, by different uh, prophets, the schools of the prophets. So they're all being all that is being overseen by God the Holy Spirit. So they're not just people coming in and making it up. God is overseeing the process. And from this uh, proto-Hebrew text, 
develops uh, what we uh, what they identify as a proto or early Masoretic text, which would come in in the er, uh, very late BC period. And that, and I see, we I, there's a dashed line here because it's covering many years, but that is, eventually becomes the Masoretic text. Then there's another tradition that goes to the pre-Samaritan text, which eventually develops into the final form of the Samaritan Torah. And then you have what is called the Hebrew forlaga of the Septuagint. That would be the Hebrew text they had in Egypt that is what was translated into uh, into Greek in the Septuagint. So you see the timeline down here. Uh, all of this is developed prior to the time of Christ. Then you have these different documents, and there's competition, and there's study. The study that these guys, it's incredible. They memorize, if you were going to be a scribe, you had to memorize the entire Hebrew Old Testament without a mistake. You had to know that as you blocked out a page on the scroll, so there would still be a page there in columns, as you blocked that out, every column started with each column along the pages would start with the same word. So you're making an exact copy. The first word is going to be the same. The last word is going to be the same. The word in the middle is going to be the same. And you, they would go along and check all of these. And if there's one mistake, then they would have to uh, get rid of that. And they would start all over. And it was a very slow, painstaking process of, of making a copy. Another way to look at this development is that you have this next slide is going to take the proto-Masoretic text and its development to the standardized text of today. So you have this early Masoretic text, and you had examples in Palestine, in Egypt, and in Babylon. So there's uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Masoretic text of Chronicles, and several Qumran texts indicate a the influence uh, in Palestine in the area of Judea and Samaria. Then you have the Babylonian example of what would be a proto-Masoretic text, and then the Egypt example of the Septuagint. And so these would come together and develop into what was a standardized text that existed at the time of Jesus in the first century. But that's not yet the final form of the of the Masoretic text. So that takes us through this the whole background of the different texts and how you put that together. Now, I don't have slides on this at this point. We I want to go back and just say a few things about the origin of the Hebrew Bible. And at this point, we're really transitioning to what we've discovered archaeologically. Moses, the, the contention in the documentary hypothesis and critical scholarship is that A, Moses couldn't have written. B, uh, that was way too early. Nobody was reading or writing at that point. All of that is bogus. Nobody believes that anymore. But that was the foundation for the uh, whole uh, critical view of the development of the Pentateuch. One of the issues that uh, surfaced later is that to write the Pentateuch, if Moses, who had been trained in all of the forms of education in Egypt, if Moses wrote it in hieroglyphics, then it would be the size of a number of very large telephone books, if you remember the size of a telephone book. So these would be really, it would be impossible to really be passing, passing that on and so uh, a few years ago in 2019, Dr. Petrovich had a series that we've had linked a couple of times in this series uh, on the um, dealing with Joseph and the Exodus, and he brings out a lot of this particular information. And he has a new book out that just came out in early January called The Origins of the Hebrews, which is based on that series. It's $40 in, in Kindle. But I'll tell you, if you wait about 
four weeks, he will be here, and he will have copies of his book to sell. So there will be a hefty discount, I'm sure. Uh, so I would wait wait for that. Um, so the solution to this is what we've discovered archaeologically, and uh, that there's been the development, or there was the development, of a proto-alphabetic script in the uh, ancient Near East from the time of the third millennia B.C. That's from 3000 to 2000 B.C. This would be the time at, really after the flood. Uh, there's an archaeological site at Ebla, which is also referred to as Tel Mardik, in Syria. And it was first excavated in 1964. And I think that a lot of the discoveries and everything were finally published around 73 or 74, because when I was first taking uh, Introduction to the Old Testament in seminary in 76, that that this was the subject of several lectures is what we, what had been discovered at at uh, at Ebla and it wasn't that they discovered things that directly related to the bible but indirectly they did in all of those documents that they found there they discovered people who had the same names as people who are in the bible they were common names so it shows that what the bible describes in the patriarchal period uh, fits with what has been discovered in archaeology, how people lived and their customs and things of that nature are the names and the activities and the customs of the people that are described in Genesis is taking place in that period between uh, 3000 and 2000 uh, B.C. So Ebla gave a lot of insights into that. But also, we learned from some of the Ebla documents that Semitic peoples had adapted a logographic system of writing invented by the Sumerians and was used to write their own literature. Uh, there was also found in Ugarit, which is another city that's in Syria that was a Canaanite city. And so there's a, the documents there are in a proto or an early form of Canaanite. And at Ugarit, they discovered an alphabetic writing that survived into the mid-1000s. Now, mid-1000s would be 1500 B.C. 1446 B.C. is when the Exodus took place. So this gives (coughs) evidence of a Semitic uh, alphabet at that time. And it was a a proto-Semitic linear alphabet. William Shea... And I believe he's the one that uh, Doug mentioned in his lectures. William Shea, who's a researcher, archaeologist, published uh, proto-Semitic alphabetic rock inscriptions from Wadi El-Hil in Egypt near the Valley of the Kings, close to ancient Thebes. And those writings on those rocks date to about 1800 B.C. Now, what Doug does in much more detail... Uh, that I'm going to go into was he shows that this fits the same basic time period as Joseph. And so his thesis, which he develops in the book he has on the Hebrew alphabet and this new book, is that Joseph, uh, he believes, was instrumental in developing this Semitic alphabet because it was a lot simpler to do all of the record-keeping necessary during the uh, all of the accounting that had to be taken care of in the, the seven years of, of plenty and then the seven years of famine and uh, just taking care of all the uh, uh, taxes, all the food that was being stored, all those records and everything, instead of doing it in, in uh, hieroglyphics, it would have been easier in an alphabet. So he believes... Uh, there's good evidence that, that Joseph and his brothers or immediate descendants were instrumental in that. And so that gives us clearly from, eight, that's 1800, that's 300 years before Moses is born, that there's a Semitic alphabet. And so it's very, uh, very easy to understand that Moses had a Hebrew alphabet that he used uh, in writing the, the Pentateuch. And we're told in in, um, Acts 7.22 that Moses was educated 
in all of the learning of the Egyptians. So when Moses sat down, he would have had, that had been passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, various source material on their ancestry. When you look at the at Genesis, there are various uh, lines that are used, such as uh, Genesis 2-4. This is the generation of the heavens and the earth. That's written, at, and it's basically, this is what happened to the heavens and the earth after God did that. So the first source would have been written by God because he was the eyewitness in Genesis 1-1 to 2-4. The next section goes to the beginning of chapter 5, I believe, and this is the record of what happens to Adam. And so that's that section. And so these documents would have been preserved so that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, there was research, solid research material there, resource material for Moses to use to write uh, Genesis. And he would have had all access to all of those records along with the fact that God would reveal some things to him that may not have been in the records and it was all done under the inspiration of, of God, the Holy Spirit. So what Moses wrote down came from these various sources, these Toledot sections in Genesis. And, of course, parts of the law were written by the finger of God. So God writes part of it. Some of it was dictated to Moses, and other parts of it came through divine revelation and inspiration. One of the problems that is brought up by uh, liberals and critics is that at the end of Deuteron or in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 4.2, we read, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And yet at the end of Deuteronomy, there is information regarding the death of, of Moses. And that was probably written by Joseph. I mean, not Joseph, Joshua. That would have been written by Joshua. But the end of Deuteronomy doesn't deal with the commandments or the mandates of God or the law. It's simply the narrative of what happened to Moses after he goes up to, to Mount Nebo. And, um, and then he goes to be with the Lord. So that's really not much of a problem. So when we look at all of this information that I've gone through on the Old Testament, what we discover is, number one, God the Holy Spirit is overseeing not only the revelation, the inspiration, the writing of the text, but also its uh, preservation and transmission and the process that it goes through until it is fi finally reaches uh, the present text form, uh, which, is, which is done by numerous prophets, and scribes in the process so that it is guaranteed to be what God wants it to be and organized the way God intended it to be. It also is pretty clear that by the time you get to the uh, first century, because Jesus refers to, in one passage, refers to from, you killed all the prophets from Abel, uh, Abel to Zechariah. That doesn't work in the English organization of the text, but in the Hebrew organization of the text, the last prophet that is killed by the, by the Jews because they don't like what he's saying is Zechariah, not the Zechariah that's the post-exilic prophet, but he's mentioned in, uh, in Second Chronicles. And so Jesus refers to the parameters of the Old Testament canon as from Abel, Genesis 4, to Zechariah, and that tells us that the canon they used, that the collection of books that they used at the time of Jesus uh, was exactly the same as what we have today, and that as far as the Jews were concerned, the composition of the text by its original authors was held as authoritative as from God, and the transmission of that material was viewed as the most important thing you could do and that nobody had a right to change anything. And that they had very strict rules for how this was, was covered. So when we ask the question, can we trust the text that we have from the Old Testament, the answer is yes, definitely. We have more evidence that con confirms its accuracy 
than we could possibly imagine than any generation since uh, the Old Testament. And I think that's just another witness God has against this generation. We have more biblical teaching available today than any other time in history. We have more certainty, more Bible study, more evidence, everything. And yet this is a generation that is more uh, hostile, more negative, more resistant, more angry with God than any any previous generation. And it is getting more and more to be a global reaction. So next time we'll come back and we'll look at archaeological evidence that confirms or validates what the scripture says in terms of the general approach to things. Archaeology can't prove the Bible. All it can do is uh, show that the Bible conforms to what we discover in the non-written evidence in the archaeological finds. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and that you have revealed so much to us and that so much has been discovered, all of which uh, confirms what the Scripture says, none of which uh, invalidates it. And, Father, we pray that you would use this for believers to help us to uh, have more confidence in the truth of your word and the uh, fact that it has been supernaturally preserved and protected for us to be able to use it to this very day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.